This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of the Spirit and the Life of Today by Evelyn Underhill. Read by Mary Reagan. Chapter 7, Part A The Life of the Spirit and Education. In the past six chapters, we have been considering, in the main, our own position and how, here in the present, we as adults may actualize and help on the spiritual life in ourselves. But our best hope of giving spirit its rightful, full expression within the time world lies in the future. It is towards that that those who really care must work. Anything which we can do towards persuading into better shape our own deformed characters, compelling our recalcitrant energy into fresh channels, is little in comparison with what might be achieved in the plastic, growing, psychic life of children, did we appreciate our full opportunity and the importance of using it. This is why I propose now to consider one or two points in the relation of education to the spiritual life. Since it is always well, in a discussion of this kind, to be quite clear about the content of the words with which we deal, I will say at once that by education I mean that deliberate adjustment of the whole environment of a growing creature, which surrounds it with the most favorable influences and deduces all its powers, giving it the most helpful conditions for its full growth and development. Education should be the complete preparation of the young thing for fullness of life, involving the evolution and the balanced training of all its faculties, bodily, mental, and spiritual. It should train and refine senses, instincts, intellect, will and feeling, giving a world view based on real facts and real values, and encouraging active correspondence therewith. Thus the educationist, if he be convinced, as I think most of us must be, that all isn't quite right with the world of mankind, has the priceless opportunity of beginning the remaking of humanity from the right end, in the child he has a little supple thing which can be made into a vital spiritual thing, and nothing again will count so much for it as what happens in these earliest years. To start life straight is the secret of inward happiness, and to a great extent the secret of health and power. That conception of man upon which we have been working, and which regards his psychic life on all levels as the manifold expressions of one single energy, or urge in the depths of his being, a life force seeking fulfillment has obvious and important applications in the educational sphere. It indicates that the fundamental business of education is to deal with this urgent and untempered craving, discipline it, and direct it towards interests of permanent value, helping it to establish useful habits, removing obstacles in its path, blocking the side channels down which it might run. Especially is it the task of such education gradually to disclose to the growing psyche those spiritual correspondences for which the religious man and the idealist must hold that man's spirit was made. Such an education as this has little in common with the mere crude imparting of facts. It represents, rather, the careful and loving induction of the growing human creature into the rich world of experience, the help we give it in the great business of adjusting itself to reality. It operates by means of the molding influences of environment, the creation of habit. Suggestion, not statement, is its most potent instrument, and such suggestion begins for good or ill at the very dawn of consciousness. 
Therefore, the child whose infancy is not surrounded by persons of true outlook is handicapped from the start, and the training in this respect of the parents of the future is one of the greatest services we can render to the race. We are beginning to learn the overwhelming importance of infantile impressions, how a forgotten babyish fear or grief may develop underground, and produce at last an unrecognizable growth poisoning the body and the mind of the adult. But here good is at least as potent as ill. What terror, a hideous sight, an unloving nurture may do for evil, a happy impression, a beautiful sight, a loving nurture, will do for good. Moreover, we can bury good seed in the unconscious minds of children and reasonably look forward to the fruit. Babyish prayers, simple hymns, traced while the mind is still ductile, the paths in which feelings shall afterwards tend to flow, and it is only in maturity that we realize our psychological debt to these early, and perhaps afterwards abandoned, beliefs and deeds. So the veritable education of the spirit begins at once in the cradle, and its chief means will be the surroundings within which that childish spirit first develops its little awareness of the universe, the appeals which are made to its instincts, the stimulations of its life of sense. The first factor of this education is the family, the second, the society within which the family is formed. Though we no longer suppose it to possess innate ideas, the baby has most surely innate powers, inclinations, and curiosities, and is reaching out in every direction towards life. It is brimming with will-power, ready to push hard into experience. The environment in which it is placed, and the responses which the outer world makes to it, and these surroundings and responses in the long run are largely of our choosing and making, represent either the helping or thwarting of its tendencies, and the sum total of the directions in which its powers can be exercised and its demands satisfied, the possibilities, in fact, which life puts before it. We as individuals and as a community control and form part of this environment. Under the first head, we play by influence or demeanor a certain part in the education of every child whom we meet. Under a second head, by acquiescence in the social order, we accept responsibility for the state of life in which it is born. The child's first intimations of the spiritual must and can only come to it through the incarnation of spirit in its home and the world that it knows. What then are we doing about this? It means that the influences which shape the men and women of the future will be as wholesome and as spiritual as we ourselves are, no more, no less. Tone, atmosphere are the things which really matter, and these are provided by the group mind and reflect its spiritual state. The child's whole educational opportunity is contained in two factors, the personality it brings and the environment it gets. Generations of educationists have disputed their relative importance, but neither party can deny that the most fortunate nature, given wrongful or insufficient nurture, will hardly emerge unharmed. Even great inborn powers atrophy if left unused, and exceptional ability in any direction may easily remain undeveloped if the environment be sufficiently unfavorable, a result too often achieved in the domain of the spiritual life. We must have opportunity and encouragement to try our powers and inclinations, be helped to understand their nature and the way to use them, unless we are to begin again, each one of us, in the stone age of the soul. 
so too even small powers may be developed to an astonishing degree by suitable surroundings and wise education witness the results obtained by the expert training of defective children and all this is as applicable to the spiritual as to the mental and bodily life that life is quick to respond to the demands made on it to take every opportunity of expression that comes its way if you make the right appeal to any human faculty that faculty will respond and begin to grow thus it is that the slow quiet pressure of tradition first in the home and then in the school shapes the child during his most malleable years we therefore are surely bound to watch and criticize the environment the tradition the customs we are instrumental in providing for the infant future to ask ourselves whether we are sure the tradition is right the conventions we hand on useful the ideal we uphold complete the child whatever his powers cannot react to something which is not there he can't digest food that is not given to him use faculties for which no objective is provided hence the great responsibility of our generation as to providing a complete balanced environment now a fully rounded opportunity of response to life physical mental and spiritual for the generation preparing to succeed us such education as this has been called a preparation for citizenship but this conception is too narrow unless the citizenship be that of the city of god and the adjustments involved to be those of the spirit as well as of the body and the mind herbert spencer whom one would hardly accuse of being a spiritual philosopher was accustomed to group the essentials of a right education under four heads one forty six First, he said, we must teach self-preservation in all senses, how to keep the body and the mind healthy and efficient, how to be self-supporting, how to protect oneself against external dangers and encroachments. Next, we must train the growing creature in its duties towards the life of the future, parenthood and its responsibilities, understood in the widest sense. Thirdly, we must prepare it to take its place in the present, as a member of the social order into which it is born. Last, we must hand on to it all those refinements of life which the past has given to us, the hoarded culture of the race. Only if we do these four things thoroughly can we dare to call ourselves educators in the full sense of the word. Now, turning to the spiritual interests of the child, and unless we are crass materialists, we must believe these interests to exist and to be paramount, what are we doing to further them in these four fundamental directions? First, does the average good education train our young people in spiritual self-preservation? Does it send them out equipped with the means of living a full and efficient spiritual life? Does it furnish them with a health-giving type of religion that is a solid hold on eternal realities, a view of the universe capable of withstanding hostile criticism, of supporting them in times of difficulty and of stress? Secondly, does it give them a spiritual outlook in respect of their racial duties, fit them in due time to be parents of other souls? Does it train them to regard humanity and their own place in the human life stream from this point of view? This point is of special importance, in view of the fact that racial and biological knowledge on lower levels is now so generally in the possession of boys and girls, and is bound to produce a distorted conception of life, unless the spirit be studied by them with at least the same respectful attention that is given to the flesh.
Thirdly, what does our education do towards preparing them to solve the problems of social and economic life in a spiritual sense? Our only reasonable chance of extracting the next generation from the social muddle in which we are plunged today. Last, to what extent do we try to introduce our pupils into a full enjoyment of their spiritual inheritance, the culture and tradition of the past? I do not deny that there are educators, chiefly perhaps educators of girls, who can give favorable answers to all these questions, but they are exceptional. The proportion of the child population whom they influence is small, and frequently their proceedings are looked upon, not without some justice, as eccentric. If, then, in all these departments our standard type of education stops short of the spiritual level, are we not self-convicted as, at best, theoretical believers in the worth and destiny of the human soul? Consider the facts. Outside the walls of definitely religious institutions, where methods are not always adjusted to the common stuff and needs of contemporary human life, it does not seem to occur to many educationists to give the education of the child's soul the same expert delicate attention so lavishly bestowed on the body and the intellect. By expert delicate attention, I do not mean persistent religious instruction, but a skilled and loving care for the growing spirit, inspired by a deep conviction and helped by all the psychological knowledge we possess. If we look at the efforts of organized religion, we are bound to admit that in thousands of rural parishes, and in many towns too, it is still possible to grow from infancy to old age as a member of a church or chapel without once receiving any first-hand teaching on the powers and needs of the soul or the technique of prayer or obtaining any more help in the great religious difficulties of adolescence than a general invitation to believe and to trust God. Morality, that is to say correctness of response to our neighbor and our temporal surroundings, is often well taught. Spirituality, correctness of response to God and our eternal surroundings, is most often ignored. A peculiar British bashfulness seems to stand in the way of it, it is felt that we show better taste in leaving the essentials of the soul's development to chance, even that such development is not wholly desirable or manly, that the atrophy of one aspect of man's made trinity is best. I have heard one eminent ecclesiastic maintain that regular and punctual attendance at morning service in a mood of non-comprehending loyalty was the best sort of spiritual experience for the average Englishman. Is not that a statement which should make the Christian teachers who are responsible for the average Englishman feel a little bit uncomfortable about the type which they have produced? I do not suggest that education should encourage a feverish religiosity, but that it ought to produce balanced men and women whose faculties are fully alert and responsive to all levels of life. As it is, we train boy scouts and girl guides in the principles of honor and chivalry. Our Bible classes minister to the hungry spirit much information about the journeys of St. Paul with maps. But the pupils are seldom invited or assisted to taste and see that the Lord is sweet. Now this indifference means, of course, that we do not as educators, as controllers of the racial future, really believe in the spiritual foundations of our personality as thoroughly and practically we believe in its mental and physical manifestations. Whatever the philosophy or religion we profess may be, it remains for us in the realm of idea, not in the realm of fact. In practice, we do not aim at the achievement of a spiritual type of consciousness as the crown of human culture. The best that most education does for our children is only what the devil did for Christ, 
it takes them up to the top of a high mountain and shows them all the kingdoms of this world the kingdom of history the kingdom of letters the kingdom of beauty the kingdom of science it is a splendid vision but unfortunately fugitive and since the spirit is not fugitive it demands an objective that is permanent if we do not give it such an objective one of two things must happen to it either it will be restless and dissatisfied and throw the whole life out of key or it will become dormant for lack of use and so the whole life will be impoverished its best promise unfulfilled one line leads to the neurotic the other to the average sensual man and I think it will be agreed that modern life produces a good crop of both these kind of defectives. But if we believe that the permanent objective of the Spirit is God, if He be indeed for us the fountain of life and the sum of reality, can we acquiesce in these forms of loss? Surely it ought to be our first aim to make the sense of His universal presence and transcendent worth and of the self's responsibility to Him dominant for the plastic youthful consciousness confided to our care to introduce that consciousness into a world which is really a theocracy and encourages aptitude for generous love if educationists do not view such a proposal with favor this shows how miserable and distorted our common conception of god has become and how small a part it really plays in our practical life most of us scramble through that practical life and are prepared to let our children scramble too without any clear notions of that hygiene of the soul which has been studied for centuries by experts and few look upon this branch of self-knowledge as something that all men may possess who will submit to education and work for its achievement thus we have degenerated from the medieval standpoint for then at least the necessity of spiritual education was understood and accepted and the current psychology was in harmony with it but now there is little attempt to deepen and enlarge the spiritual faculties, none to encourage their free and natural development in the young, or their application to any richer world of experience than the circle of pious images with which religious education generally deals. The result of this is seen in the rawness, shallowness, and ignorance which characterize the attitude of many young adults to religion. Their beliefs and their skepticism alike are often the acceptance or rejection of the obsolete. If they be agnostics, the dogmas which they reject are frequently theological caricatures. If they be believers, both their religious conceptions and their prayers are found on investigation still to be of an infantile kind, totally unrelated to the interests and outlook of modern men. Two facts emerge from the experience of all educationists. The first is that children are naturally receptive and responsive. The second that adolescents are naturally idealistic. In both stages, the young human creature is full of interests and curiosities asking to be satisfied, of energies demanding expression, and here in their budding, thrusting life, for which we, by our choice of surroundings and influence, may provide the objective, is the raw material out of which the spiritual humanity of the future might be made. The child has already within it the living seed wherein all human possibilities are contained, our part is to give the right soil, the shelter, and the watering can. Spiritual education, therefore, does not consist in putting into the child something which it has not, but in educing and sublimating that which it has, in establishing habits, fostering a trend of growth which shall serve it well in later years. Already all the dynamic instincts are present, at least in germ, 
asking for an outlet. The will and the emotions, ductile as they will never be again, are ready to make full and ungraduated response to any genuine appeal to enthusiasm. The imagination will accept the food we give, if we give it in the right way. What an opportunity! Nowhere else do we come into such direct contact with the plastic stuff of life. Never again shall we have at our disposal such a fund of emotional energy. In the child's dreams and fantasies, in its eager hero worship, later in the adolescent's fervid friendships or devoted loyalty to an adored leader, we see the search of the living, growing creature for more life and love, for an enduring object of devotion. Do we always manage or even try to give it that enduring object in a form it can accept? Yet the responsibility of providing such a presentation of belief as shall evoke the spontaneous reactions of faith and love, for no compulsory idealism ever succeeds, is definitely laid on the parent and the teacher. It is in the enthusiastic imitation of a beloved leader that the child or adolescent learns best. Were the spiritual life the most real effect to us, did we believe in it as we variously believe in athletics, physical science, or the arts, surely we should spare no effort to turn to its purposes these priceless qualities of youth. Were the mind's communion with the Spirit of God generally regarded as its natural privilege, and therefore the first condition of its happiness and health, the general method and tone of modern education would inevitably differ considerably from that which we usually see. And if the life of the Spirit is to come to fruition, here is one of the points at which reformation must begin. When we look at the ordinary practice of modern, civilized Europe, we cannot claim that any noticeable proportion of our young people are taught during their docile and impressionable years the nature and discipline of their spiritual faculties, in the open and common-sense way in which they are taught languages, science, music, or gymnastics. Yet it is surely a central duty of the educator to deepen and enrich to the fullest extent possible his pupil's apprehension of the universe, and must not all such apprehension move towards the discovery of that universe as a spiritual fact? Again, in how many schools is the period of religious and idealistic enthusiasm, which so commonly occurs in adolescence, wisely used, skillfully trained, and made the foundation of an enduring spiritual life? Here is the period in which the relation of master and pupil is or may be most intimate and most fruitful, and can be made to serve the highest interests of life. Yet no great proportion of those set apart to teach young people seem to realize and use this privilege. I am aware that much which I am going to advocate will sound fantastic, and that the changes involved may seem at first sight impossible to accomplish. It is true that if these changes are to be useful, they must be gradual. The policy of the clean sweep is one which both history and psychology condemn. But it does seem to me a good thing to envisage clearly, if we can, the ideal towards which our changes should lead. A garden city is not utopia. Still, it is an advance upon the Victorian type of suburb and slum, and we should not have got it if some men had not believed in utopia and tried to make a beginning here and now. Already in education, some few have tried to make such a beginning and have proved that it is possible if we believe in it enough, for faith can move even that mountainous thing, the British parental mind. Our task, and I believe our most real hope for the future, is, as we have already allowed, to make the idea of God dominant for the plastic youthful consciousness, and not only this, but to harmonize that conception 
first with our teachings about the physical and mental sides of life, and next with the child's own social activities, training body, mind, and spirit together, that they may take each their part in the development of the whole man, fully responsive to a universe which is at bottom a spiritual fact. Such training to be complete must, as we have seen, begin in the nursery and be given by the atmosphere and opportunities of the home. It will include the instilling of childish habits of prayer and the fostering of simple expressions of reverence, admiration, and love. The subconscious knowledge implicit in such practice must form the foundation, and only where it is present will doctrine and principle have any real meaning for the child. Prayer must come before theology, and kindness, tenderness, and helpfulness before ethics. But we now have to consider the child of school age coming, too often without this, the only adequate preparation, into the teacher's hands. How is he to be dealt with? and the opportunities which he presents used best. When I see a right man, says Jacob Burma, there I see three worlds standing. Since our aim should be to make right men, and evoke in them not merely a departmental piety, but a robust and intelligent spirituality, we ought to explain in simple ways to these older children something at least of that view of human nature on which our training is based. The religious instruction given in most schools is divided, in varying proportions, between historical or doctrinal teaching and ethical teaching. Now a solid hold on both history and on morals is a great need, but these are only realized in their full importance and enter completely into life when they are seen within the spiritual atmosphere. And already, even in childhood, and supremely in youth, this atmosphere can be evoked. It does not seem to occur to most teachers that religion contains anything beyond or within the two departments of historical creed and of morals, that, for instance, the greatest utterances of St. John and St. Paul deal with neither, but with attainable levels of human life, in which a new and fuller kind of experience was offered to mankind. Yet surely they ought at least to attempt to tell their pupils about this. I do not see how Christians, at any rate, can escape the obligation or shuffle out of it by saying that they do not know how it can be done. Indeed, all who are not thoroughgoing materialists must regard the study of the spiritual life as, in the truest sense, a department of biology, and any account of man which fails to describe it as incomplete. Where the science of the body is studied, the science of the soul should be studied too. Therefore, in the upper forms at least, the psychology of religious experience in its widest sense as a normal part of a full human existence and the connection of that experience with practical life, as is seen in history, should be taught. If it is done properly, it will hold the pupil's interest, for it can be made to appeal to those same mental qualities of wonder, curiosity, and exploration which draw so many boys and girls to physical science. But there should be no encouragement of introspection, none of the false mystery, or so-called reverence, with which these subjects are sometimes surrounded, and above all, no spirit of exclusivism. The pupil should be led to see his own religion as a part of the universal tendency of life to God. This need not involve any reduction of the claims made on him by his own church or creed, but the emphasis should always be on the likeness, rather than the differences, of the great religions of the world. Moreover, Higher education cannot be regarded as complete unless the mind be furnished with some rationale of its own deepest experiences, and a harmony be established between impulse and thought. 
Advanced pupils should, then, be given a simple and general philosophy of religion, plainly stated in language which relates it with the current philosophy of life. This is no counsel of perfection. It has been done, and can be done again. It is said of Edward Caird that he placed his pupils from the beginning at a point of view whence the life of mankind could be contemplated as one movement, single though infinitely varied, unerring though wandering, significant yet mysterious, secure and self-enriching though tragical. There was a general sense of the spiritual nature of reality and of the rule of mind, though what was meant by spirit or mind was hardly asked. There was a hope and faith that outstripped all save the vaguest understanding, but which evoked a glad response that somehow God was imminent in the world and in the history of all mankind, making it sane. And the effect of this teaching on the students was that they received the doctrine with enthusiasm and forgot themselves in the sense of their partnership in a universal enterprise. One. Such teaching as this is a real preparation for citizenship, an introduction into the enduring values of the world. 1. Jones and Muirhead, Life and Philosophy of Edward Caird, pages 64, 65. End of chapter 7, part A. Footnote 146, Spencer, Education.